Luke 15, verse 11. And it is the direct words of the Lord Jesus, translated for us, of course, into English. We believe that the whole of the word from Genesis to Revelation is God inspired. But here we have the direct words of the Saviour while he was here on planet Earth, telling this very familiar story. So reading from verse 11, then we pray. Father, we thank you for the message that Jesus brings. And we thank you, Lord, that he is the message. He is the center and circumference of the message. And we thank you, Lord, that there is always room at the cross for any who will call upon him. Not just for the first time, Lord, but how often all of us need daily to confess our sin and to totally depend upon you for all that you would bring. And so we ask that as we read your word, that it might read us, and we pray, Father, that it might just be a blessing, encouragement, challenge, and help to us. In the Saviour's name. Amen. Luke 15 and verse 11. And Jesus said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that forth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight, and am no worth worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring in his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his eldest son was in the field. And he came and drew nigh to the house. When he did so he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother has come, thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, would not go in. And therefore his father came out and 
treated him. And the answer he said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgress I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gave us near kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which had devoured thy living with hearts, thou hast killed for him the fatty calf. And the father said then unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. Amen to God's truth as we keep it open before us tonight. Let me tell you a story. How often we've said that to our youngsters, perhaps before they have gone to bed and gone to sleep. Let me tell you a story. And I'm sure that each one of them was so keen to hear that story from you. Whether you read it or whether it just came from the depth of your imagination and was communicated to the little one. Well now we come tonight folks to one of the master stories. Jesus is the master and he is the master storyteller. And I'm sure that of all the stories that Jesus told that we refer to as parables, as they say, earthly stories with heavenly meanings, we all have a favour. Or maybe one or two. Or maybe them all. Jesus was a wonderful storyteller. And within a matter of minutes he could get the message across. Without any seeming problem at all. And it had punch and impact as people listened to it. We mortal preachers have not that ability. Nor the skill. But our wonderful saviour had. But what's your favourite parable? Is it the parable of the sower? That's a great story, isn't it? Or is it the parable of the Good Samaritan? What a story that is! Or oh, one of my favorite stories that Jesus told is the parable of the Great Supper. And as you look at me, you see that uh, I really enjoy that story. John and I are both in church extension. <laughs> That's the way that it goes. I'm sure that you have. Story that's a special to you, that's a favour. But I would almost guarantee that the parable of the prodigal son, not just to you and I, but to the world at large, even today, is extremely well known. In fact, the term prodigal is often used in different circumstances and on different occasions. We want to have a look at the story tonight. Well, part of it anyway, because there is so much in it. I'm sure that perhaps you might feel, well, I know everything there is to know about the parable of the prodigal son. Well, I hope you do. But I trust that as we share it together, that something might freshly come to your heart and come to your mind. Luke 15 is a great chapter. It deals with three things Jesus does. It deals with the lost sheep, in verses 1 to 7. <clears throat> and then it deals with the lost silver, in verses 8 to 10. 
And then in verses 11 to 31, we have a story about the lost son. Lost sheep, one in a hundred. Lost silver, a lost son. In fact, it's not just one lost son. Or two. And there is so much in the story here about the second prodigal, the lad that stayed at home. We'll not be able to think about him tonight, but it is a very searching, a very wonderful story. It's part of the bigger picture that Jesus shared. So let's have a look together. Let's walk together with regard to this parable, the story of the prodigal sons. And it, it, it's interesting, and, and you folk appreciated perhaps better than someone in the town or the city. Because there are three particular scenes. There is a scene in the country that concerns the son who runs away, goes away from his father. And then there is the scene in the field where the elder brother is working hard and there's no one ever better than he's a hard working father. Right from the beginning to the end of the day, it was blood, sweat and tears for him, no doubt. So for the country then, there is the other son. But there in the field, there is this hard working elder son. We haven't got to forget that. But then the third picture, of course, is of the home, where the loving father is. It's from this home that the son goes into the field to work on a daily basis. It's from this home that the prodigal son goes away to spend his life. So it seems to find life. What the Bible refers to here as wild living. It's one of the most well-known stories right throughout the world. Charles Dickens, the famous English writer, and I'm sure you've read quite a lot of Dickens or know some of the stories, said this, that it is the greatest story that we have in the English language. That's some statement, isn't it? By this literary gentleman. It's a marvelous story. When I first became a Christian, an elderly gentleman took me in hand and needed to. And one of the things that he did, he used to take me to open airs to give testimony and share the Word of God. That was a great training ground for me in so many ways, and I'm so indebted to him. He himself was probably the best open-air preacher I've ever heard. He's in heaven now a long time, but mine certainly tell the story. I remember this story in the northeast of England about the prodigal son. These were his points. He went to the dogs, he lost his tongues, and fed the hogs. That was the first part. The second part was he ate the veal, got the seal, did the real. You couldn't forget those particular points in the story, could you? In the northeast, certainly, if someone goes up track, people would say, he just got to the dogs. So did this young man. Lost his togs and everything he had and found himself 
feeding the pigs, fed the hogs. But when he came to himself, the Bible tells us here, and according to, to out there in the open air, he had folk in the palm of his hand. He came back to the father and he ate the veal, got the seal, did the reel. There was merriment and dancing. He couldn't forget points like that, could he? I'm sure he couldn't. So let us put it more simply when he said you have these three things. Sick of home, homesick, and home. That's maybe easier to remember. Sick of home, homesick, and home. Well, after all that, the key expression in the story that we have before us is there in verse 13. And this is how it is put for us in our authorized version translation. He took his journey. He took his journey. And for him, it was a dangerous journey. It was a journey that if he didn't come to himself, as the Bible tells us there, if he hadn't come to where he needed to be, he would have lost everything. So on this journey, let's have a look at a number of things, can't you? Well, in verses 11 to 16, there is the downward path. He's home, does his own thing, goes his own way, that's it. It's a downward path. And then the second part in 17 to 20 is the homeward path. He realizes his folly, he realizes his mistake, and so he, he sits down and he thinks through things, and so he makes his way home. What a wonderful picture that is. And then you read in the story in verse 21 to 24 his onward path. Downward path, homeward path, onward path. For when he gets home, there is so much for him. Not only the forgiveness and love of his father, but there is so much for him to enjoy and experience. So let's take the journey then tonight, or part of it anyway. The downward path, the homeward path, and the onward path. If we go on too long with the downward path, then we'll have to leave it for another time. But you've got the general picture as to what we're trying to convey from this story. So come with me to the opening verses there in, in relation to the downward path of 11 to 16. He's a boy who understandably is in great need. In fact, there are five things that he does in this downward path. Five steps that he makes. And interestingly enough, when he, he, he moves towards home, there are five steps that he needs to make to get back. And there are other steps that he needs to make to move on with God. So what then are the five particular steps that he made in his downward path? Verse 12. His wanting gave me the portion of goods that followed to me. You see, folks, he had the disease of the guineas. Give me this, give me that, give me the other. 
Of course, it's a picture of every man, whoever we are. In ourselves, we, we always want something, don't we? We're always looking for something more. Whether we are little children at Christmas time, oh my, they want the guineas. Never just lose the guineas. The guineas certainly extend and expand. But not only does it pertain to the little youngster there who is just looking forward to Christmas, but, but for our life, there's something within this human spirit that wants the guineas. And, and there is this feeling, there is this, this realization within us that I need more than I have. There's something more than I'm losing out on. There's something more that I need to get a hold of. Because by nature, because of our sin, we are never satisfied with what we have. And if we're honest with ourselves, you know, we, we examine our hearts, whether we're Christians or non-Christians, and it is so easy to, to always want something else. There was a dear man many, many years ago who went to see his doctor. He was subject to fierce depression. His doctor gave him medication, of course, and that was out. But one day he went to the doctor and he said, he said, doctor, he said, I'm really at a desperate point here. And I just don't know what to do. And to be honest with you, the doctor himself wasn't too sure what to do regarding his patient because he'd been there quite uh, a number of times and... Uh, the doctor himself was somewhat frustrated that anything pass. And he turned round to this particular man, he said, look, he said, in town at the moment there's a circus. And I would encourage you to go to that circus because of all the entertainers in the circus, there is a clown. And when that clown does his act, moves around, he says, people will be in fits of laughter. Uh, they just can't stop laughing because uh, the clown is absolutely true. In fact, he said, I've been along to see the clown myself and uh, I really enjoyed it. I come away with a good feeling, with a, with a lifted spirit. I thought to myself, boy, that was really good. I would suggest that you go along to see him. And the dear man looked across to the doctor and he said, Believe it or not, sir, I'm that clown. I can make others laugh. I can bring some entertainment for the evening. But I'm the one in need. I'm dissatisfied with all that I have. And we live in a world, you know, where the whole area of, of satisfaction uh, comes to us time and time again, for we see it moving from one particular extreme to another, and we have what is often referred to as hedonism, where so many, not least of all young folk, are just out for what they can get because they feel that that will be the answer to their inner need. And so he begins to be in want. And he thinks that, well, there's something out there that will just satisfy my heart. And you know, folks, when we examine our own lives, and we've got to be honest with ourselves, we often feel that 
If we get a certain position, or come, as John and I do, to, to retirement, you know, but that will satisfy us. Or if we have the ideal holiday without the problem of uh, traveling difficulty, then that will really satisfy us. But does it? I mean, you take the important institution of, of marriage. So many folk understandably think, if only I could marry the right girl or the right fella, then, then that's all I would need. And one can appreciate what they were saying because maybe to one degree or another we felt the same ourselves if we are in the married state. And marriage will all be the wonder of that and the, the impact of that, the import of that. Meaningful though it is a good marriage, which always needs working at, whoever you are, especially when the children come along. Marriage can be hard work, but we've got to work at it. It's important that we do so. But even marriage with the right person, with all the ups and downs of life, with all the crises and the blessings, with all the good things and the difficult things, with all those things that lift our spirit, and all those experiences that we have that just bring a tremendous war within our hearts, nothing and no one can satisfy like a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully, you as well as I have a high view of marriage and all that it means. We all know, not least today, that there's pressure upon couples, there's pressure upon family. It's the easiest thing in the world to just opt out, do your own thing. His wanting step one, thinking that there is something else that's going to satisfy us. Step number two, you'll find it in verse 13 there, he's wandering. He doesn't only really want something, but he's, he's sick and tired of home. And so he begins to wonder in what the Bible refers to here as a far country. I'm sure that within the last thinking, there was the expectation that things would be better out there. There's been the excitement of leaving this homegrown family home, family farm, and just going to the big city. There was this uh, experimentation, no doubt, that he had in his heart, and he certainly fulfilled or sought to bring fulfillment to his life with the riotous living that he had. It was all there. There was a wandering. The expectation came. The excitement came. The experimentation came. But there was still that aching void within his life. Wanting leads to wondering. Once you go to the far country to get away from the old farm. But it doesn't meet his need. It doesn't meet his need. And so he goes off to the bright lights to enjoy life that he thinks will just answer his particular need and his problem. I mentioned this morning Van Schavner, that gentleman that was born in 1901, one of my heroes that well, I look forward to meeting in heaven one day if I actually met the dear man. But Van Schavner put it like this regarding this story. 
He says you can be in the far country at home. Isn't that interesting? He says it's not hard to find. You can enter it right where you are. You don't have to go to Las Vegas. It is a state of mind, a state of heart, affection, and facts advance. It is rebellion against the word and will of God. So to be an individual who's wandering doesn't necessarily mean you go to the far country, but at home. You can be far from God. And dare I say, folks, it's, it's possible to be in our meeting tonight and come along because it's our want, whether you come as a visitor or as a member or as a preacher and go through the motions of Christian service and Christian ministry and yet be in the far country. No one know it. No one know it. Prone to wonder, all I feel it, says the hymn writer. Prone to leave the God I love. You're far from God tonight? You don't look good now. But deep down in your heart, is there that nearness, you profess to be Christian, is, is that the nearness to God the way that it should be, or have you drifted somewhat? The easiest thing in the world is to drift. To put on the external show, but to just drift away from God. Like the ball thrown into the sea and finds its way very shortly right out beyond claim. It's wandering, moving in the wrong direction. So then, there's wanting is there, there's wandering is there. But notice that in the same part of, of verse 13, his wasting is there. His wasting is there. Let me read what the scripture says. He took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. We, we, we are acquainted with the term prodigal, but what does it mean? This is the key. This is where we, we get the word from. A wasting of what we have in a riotous life that's in rebellion to God. And so here is a young man that has everything it would seem, that has all at his disposal, but just wasted. He wasted in prodigal living. He, he wasted with a really a life out of control. He has no power over himself, and so whatever's there, whether it be women, or whether it be song, or whether it be wine, or whatever it might be, he just involves himself in prodigal living. A wasted life. Notice three things here. Number one, situationally, he spent all. Everything was gone. Externally, there was a mighty famine in the land. The land had got nothing to offer because of this famine, of this, this devastating move by, by nature. So, situationally, he spent a day. 
Externally, he, he wasn't able to get anything but a sort of famine in the land. And internally, the Bible tells us, he began to be in want. He thought he had it all. We're all spent and we're all gone. He began, that was just the beginning. He began to be in want. Wanting, wondering, wasting. Can I ask you, as I ask myself tonight, do we feel at times that our life is a waste? What have I done, you might say? I haven't done very much. Yes, I haven't been to the far country in the sense of going to the big city, but but within my life I've got my, a week to go through, I've got my job, I've got my interest involvements, I've got my church. But am I wasting my life? Have I really accomplished anything for the Lord? Does my life account for anything? And really have I made any impact at all on anybody? A wasted life. I can't think of anything more sad than that to get to the end of one's days to look back upon one's life and say, I just wasted so much. See, God has put you and I on planet Earth for a purpose. God's got a plan for us. We know that as a fact. But that our minds and our hearts, and no matter where we are, God wants to use who we are and what we are to be where He wants us to be. And so as a result of this wasting, there is a worsening in the land. He goes from uh, bad to worse, I think, but like that. He goes from what he thinks is there, or it's there really, what he thinks is there, to there. And there is this interesting comment by the Saviour, which I believe is the fulcrum, the centre point of the story. Remember, he, he goes to the Father, and he says to the Father in verse 12, Give me. Give me the portion of those that falls to me. But then when he, he comes to himself, the Bible tells us here that he says in verse 18, Make me, I have sinned against heaven, no more whether to be called that son, make me as one of your highest servants. So what a change there is in this fellow, as he's wasted so much, as he is worsening in relation to his personal life, he gets to the point where he says, Lord, make something of me. Here's my life, Lord. I don't feel that I've accomplished much, but Lord, make something of me. And the mind shift and the, the spirit shift and the genuine repentance shift is in that particular fact. He wants to be made. God is in the business, is he not, of not patching us up, but remaking us. 
It's a lifetime's experience from us, but there's got to be a beginning to that. In what Jesus refers to, as you know, in John 3, as a new birth. And once we are born again of God's Spirit, once He comes and lives within our lives, once we discover the reality of the cross that John's singing about, and we hand our lives over to Him, then when He comes into our hearts, He begins from that moment on to make us. If we let Him. And there are times, aren't there, when, when within our own experience we are pliable in the Master's hand to be remade. There are other times when we are hard like clay. It's being baked by the sun, by the environment that we live in. Perhaps a sad family life. Of something that another Christian has done to us. Perhaps an experience that we've been through that's been very difficult to, to cope with and difficult to handle. And God can take those moments for us and continue to mold us and make us. I know that within my own life those times when it's been hard and those times when I felt within my own spirit that uh, God has not done much with me and I've been somewhat rebellious against him. There have been those times when I've gone through, as you've gone through, uh, horrendous experiences that have been very difficult to calculate and equate. And then God says, hush my trap, I'm still begging you. And as far as Valerie is concerned, God's got plenty to do with them yet. And so this worsening experience is brought to a point where he comes to himself and he says, Lord, make me. Because the fifth step that he makes in verse 16 is this, his worry. He loses his money in verse 13. He loses his dignity. The Bible tells us in verse 15 that he's there feeding pigs for the Jewish individual, male or female. The pigs were the last resort to be involved in. They were considered a very unclean animal. And a very good friend is a pig farmer and, uh, and he does a wonderful job there. But within the Jewish economy, within the Jewish way of thinking, he, he loses a dignity. He's been in the home, but now he's feeding pigs. You can imagine what he's going through. Losing money, losing dignity, losing friends. No one gave unto him. No one gave unto him. Perhaps some felt, serves him right, all that dreaming. Perhaps some felt, well, he's made his bed, he's going to lie on it. No one came. And stood beside him and said, Can I help you? So there, in seeking to feed the pigs, he's wallowing in the reality of loss of money, dignity, friends. And somehow, folks, as you see from the top point, did he at this point lose himself? Did he at this time feel with his own heart that he'd missed the boat? Oh no, 
being brought to that point, he says, I will arise, go to my Father. So the downward journey leaves in a mess. But the homeward journey brings her into a new life altogether. Now it's here o'clock and there isn't time to have a the homeward journey. Hopefully maybe another time. But may I say this as I close. That for us all, whether we're Christians or whether we're not, God wants us to come home. God wants us to cease from our wanting and wasting and worsening and wallowing and find life in the sea. You know, there's an old hymn that says this, Now remember Christ and satisfy. There's no other name for me. There's love and life. Lasting joy. Lord Jesus found in me. Prodigal son. Down the journey. But thank the Lord. He comes home. Now let's pray together and that's this. Instead of having a closing hymn, we'll ask John just to finish the reading with a song again for the soul. Maybe there's someone here and you know the reality of what we've been sharing from the Word of God because though you're sitting on that seat, you're in the far country. You may be a professing Christian, but you're in the far country and wandered away. Or well, maybe there's someone here tonight, folks, and as yet you, you're regular in coming to the church, but you've never personally accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'm not saying there's going to be an easy life, it's not. But I'm saying tonight, folks, that being a Christian is the best life now. So, weary one. If you're at a distance from him, come home and find that the good news of the gospel, the message that Jesus brought while on planet Earth, is as relevant in the Grange now as it's ever been. And maybe for someone, tonight is the night. Father, you know who we are? You know where we are, you know our circumstances and our situations. And we ask, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you will draw us to our wonderful Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. Mm-hmm.
Tonight and tomorrow and forevermore. Amen.